0: It's a joyous morning, isn't it? To have the blessed opportunity and, yea, the privilege of coming together on a morning like this one, to appreciate the goodness, the greatness, and, in fact, all that God has done. Last evening, we here at Pippin enjoyed a tremendous capability of God's beauty and handiwork as we enjoyed a cookout, a hayride, and what a fun time that was, a time of communion and fellowship. In addition to that, it helps us draw closer not only to each other, but to the greatness of the God whom we serve and the one whom we love. We studied this morning, in fact, about the glory of His handiwork in Genesis chapter 1, but may I submit to you that the greatest of perhaps all of the easy things He set before us to see perhaps will be the subject of our lesson today. All the Scriptures. You noticed a moment ago, as Jeff read for us from Hebrews 4, verse 12, the stage and the text that we'll look at this morning. Please, if you would, turn in your Bible to that text. We'll be looking at that on many different occasions and levels today, but let us study the grandeur, the power, and the nature of God's holy and divine will. Now, perhaps by way of introduction, it'd be fair to say to our lesson today, that as I've indicated on the screen... There are many, many books that exist in our world. You know that as well as I. We and I, you and I, could visit the local Putnam County Library or the Tennessee Tech Library. In fact, we could easily find thousands of books to be there had, studied, read, and perused. But might we also note that even in those libraries, you could have access to millions of books online? If you and I were to venture to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C and there to see the buildings that house simply the records of the books that are on hold there, we would find millions, tens and tens of millions of books. Needless to say, far more than you and I could read in a lifetime. But isn't it fair to say, amongst all those books, some of them make tremendously great claims. In fact, I've listed... On the screen to my left, a few of them. You may have seen it advertised on TV, the book called Dianetics, supposedly the owner's manual for the human mind. I might submit to you, that's a rather tremendous claim on the part of that book, don't you agree? But what about the book by, uh, also the book entitled The da Vinci Code by Ron Brown? That book has made a tremendous star among circles over the last five to six years, hasn't it? Where in that book supposedly Jesus married Mary Magdalene and supposedly they had a child and supposedly the bloodline of that child still exists today. Supposedly that secret's been kept now for almost 2,000 years. Needless to say, that book claims a great deal. The Book of Mormon does as well, and you could list many others that in fact on occasion will claim to be equal to the Holy Word of God. May I submit to you, though, as you look at any of those books, they are a far cry from God's Word. Oh, the Scriptures. What is it that distinguishes this book from all others? You and I, with the best of our knowledge, could sit and write a book. It might relay historical information. It may present thoughtful information on many subjects. But there's still a continental divide between it and this one, and the one that you hold in your lap. What is it that's so special? Does God give us any specific clues and ideas that will help us appreciate it? You and I today could list many things about it, but let's use God's Word and look at the things He has listed. In Hebrews 4, verse number 12, that text that we considered just a moment ago in reading. As you noticed in that reading, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a designer of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now I submit to you there are four characteristics of God's Word worthy of our discussion, and let's look at each one of them in turn. The first one there, the Word of God is quick. What does it mean to be quick? You and I know that perhaps in school, you and I may have been that way. We were fast and agile and able to in fact react quickly. But to say that a book is that way seems to certainly say something different than that. To say in fact that the Word of God is quick, the original Greek word there translated simply means to be among the living to be not dead. The Word of God is not dead, it is living. But that perhaps begs another question, in what sense is a book living? In what sense is it not dead? May I submit to you there are many things that one could think about there, but without doubt. The one that seems easily to be stated by the Word of God is this one. It contains principles. Thoughts that are applicable to every person of every age of every time. And in that sense, it's always appropriate and thus active, that is to say, thus living. Consider this with me. Those books that were written 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, yea, 3,500 years ago, May I submit to you that you and I might pursue those books, but their value would be nothing more than historical. Would you pursue one of those books to learn, for instance, the means by which things would be done in society today? Would it be useful to consult one of those books to find information about the working of a computer, or the information related to your car, or even in our modern age, how to deal with other matters? the answer is obviously no, isn't it? But consider God's Word. Though this book was written anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500 years ago, depending on the book of the 66 one considers, is it still reasonable to study it, to find out information about today? Oh, absolutely. That's what the word quick means. The Word of God is quick. It's living. It's active. I might submit to you that mankind has often attempted to do something like that. Most founding fathers of our country wrote that constitution somewhat over 216 years ago now, and they, in the very character of that book, stated that there should be a Supreme Court that should always interpret laws to ensure that they are in agreement with and do not in any sense concord against the nature of that Constitution. Thus, those founding fathers intended the Supreme Court to make the Constitution a quick document. It should always be useful for the forming of those laws and sense of making sure they're in agreement with that Constitution. May I submit to you, God did a lot better job than that. We now do not need a supreme court, if you will. The Son of God came to plan, and He, in fact, put in place His last will and testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. And that last will and testament is a firm affirmation, a continuing quickness of this document. It will never fade away. It will never become obsolete. It will be as needful tomorrow as today. It will be as needful a thousand years from now as now if this world continues to stand. May I submit to you that the very nature of Hebrews 4 teaches us that that very idea. The subject of Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1 of that chapter, the inspired writer called our teacher to the fact that in the Old Testament, God spoke of and promised a rest. R-E-S-T. In Joshua, we read about the people of Israel finally achieving the conquering of that promised land and thus they did enjoy a period of rest. Was that the rest of which God spoke? Was that the rest that He promised? The inspired writer uses the fact of the quickness of God's word to prove the answer is no. For he says David, in one of the Psalms, the first of that rest, as something that was still in existence and continuing. And hence, if that had been the nature of the rest God promised, if the rest that the people of Israel enjoyed in the time of Joshua was the rest God promised, how could David have spoken of it as something yet to be enjoyed? David lived, you see, after the time of the judges. Thus God's word was just as meaningful as just quick for them as it is for us. Consider some other the passages that help us appreciate that same point. As Paul wrote to his young protege, his young son in the faith, Timothy, he stated those unforgettable words, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, the furnished unto all good works. Those words in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 forever challenge us to understand that God's word is quick, needful in the sense of rebuking, encouraging. It's that which is needful to make you in the right or whole in His sight. That very verse challenges us to remember too. Jesus' statement in John 6 verse 63, Didn't the sacred Savior there say, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. When it comes to quickness, making something alive, we know that spiritually you and I need that or else we'll be lost in a devil's hell. We must not remain separated from God by sin and ungodliness. How do we then come back from spiritual death the source of life is in my hand, and it's in your hand. We find it here. Jesus said, Lord, I speak unto you, they are life. This is a living document. More living than anything man could write. For you see, it is as pertinent to any generation, any person in any culture in any country. The Holy Word of God is quick. But the Hebrew writer said something else. He said, it's powerful... The Word of God is quick and powerful. Let us consider that point as well. What does it mean to discuss the powerful nature of that document? The Hebrew word again, or rather the Greek word of the New Testament, it means effective. It means active. It means to cause something to happen. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it interesting to see that meaning applied to the Word of God? God's Word can make things happen. That fact alone, again, perhaps asks us to think about the notion of power. You and I can think of many things that are powerful. In nature, we often see the destructive force of a volcano or a hurricane or a tornado. And it's a fearsome thing to behold. You and I, perhaps, under fear of a tornado, have rushed to your basement and covered our head, wondering whether or not we would survive. But not only in the natural world, mankind has even been able to fashion things that have power. A gun has power. What about earth-moving equipment that men use to build roads and bore tunnels through mountains? That's powerful. But may I submit to you, it holds not a candle to some of the greatest power imaginable. Can any of those things we've just mentioned change fundamentally and basically a person? Can it work on a person's heart and change him to be a different individual than what he formerly was? Nothing can do that that we've mentioned to this point. But God's Word is powerful. May I submit to you that the Word of God can take a person... Starting from the inside out and change that person into what he was not before. In fact, we as Christians have all been there. We've seen that happen. In Ephesians chapter four, verses twenty-two through twenty-five, the inspired writer Paul there expressly contrasts the new man to the old says to be fashioned again according to the new name which is created after holiness and righteousness. Paul's contrast is meaningless unless we appreciate the distinction that's made between what God fashions and creates through the agency of his word and what there was before. A person who obeys the gospel does not merely become wet. That person is transformed by servitude to a new covenant. He is a Christian or she is a Christian. The fact of becoming washed again, remade after the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3 verse 5, is no light thing. Isn't God's Word powerful? Can it transform an individual by virtue of the person obeying it to make him or her what he or she was not before? That reminds us of Paul's statement to the Roman brethren in Romans 1. In verse sixteen of that chapter, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The Just shall live by faith. Let us reflect on the word power. That was one of the first words in verse sixteen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is what? The power of God unto salvation. That word power is the translation of the Greek word dynamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S, dynamis, dunamis, which, by the way, is the same word from which we get the English word dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. Is it not been the case that Paul is saying that God's dynamite to blast sin and ungodliness out of the life of a person is the Scriptures, the Gospel of Christ? No machine can do that. No volcano can do that. God's Word can do that. Isn't it being a marvelous treasure to behold that you and I can return to this time and again and read and peruse and rightly divide as we prayed earlier today? The very thought being of God's Word, being powerful, is truly an amazing thing. You and I have in our hands that which can transform lives, not just our own, but those to whom we spread it, those to whom we make it known. It's no longer we place such emphasis on God's Word, for the Scriptures place that emphasis too. The power, then, that we see, see laden in this, perhaps is the very issue our Savior was discussing in John fifteen three. Now you are clean through the words which I have spoken unto you. In what way, then, are people made spiritually clean? Is it not by virtue of the words the Christ spoke? Sure it is. That's what Jesus said. You and I, then, if we ever are to be noble, people of character, minds of integrity, and the sight of heaven, it will be only by virtue of our obedience to the sacred scriptures. But the writer in Hebrews went further than this. In addition to being quick, and in addition to being powerful, notice what else he said. Two more items to be noted in the next one. He affirmed in these words, God's word is sharp. In fact, the statement there, sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it mean to say that something is sharp? This word in the Greek does mean what we imply that it means. It means to be something that's cutting or that which is sharp. And we know, we know what things that are sharp do. They sever, they cut. Our wives in the kitchen have many knives that are used to cut things, some sharper than others, but we all have seen what they can do, maybe to our finger, when they're applied to things we do not wish to cut. They still cut. Toes in our worksheds often are used to cut or to sever. Those in the military use machetes to cut or to sever. In John 18.10, Peter used a very sword to cut off a portion of the ear of a man named Malchus. Swords can cut. Isn't it the, the case that when we think about the cutting character or the sharp version What does it mean to say this book is that way? That again seems a puzzlement, doesn't it? How can a book be sharp? Could you use it to cut a finger? Could you use it to, in some way, sever an object or item? Well, again, the Scriptures are sharp, all right, but not to physically pierce the skin or not to physically sever some object like a chunk of wood but it's sharp in another way. Let's again notice the reading. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The sharpness of which the inspired writer speaks is a sharpness that seems to relate directly to piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. I've made some comments on the screen to point us in that direction. The Greek word indicates sharper than any or all two-edged swords. That is to say there is nothing that man can concoct, nothing that man can devise, nothing he can make, nothing he can fashion that holds a candle to the sharpness of this book. That means we should appreciate then what that sharpness is and that to which it relates. We've know known that it's able to cut away sin and shame out of the life of a person. That individual, no matter how shameful his life may have been, no matter how ungodly the ways of his life may have been directed, no matter the degree to which he turned his back upon the God who loved him, if he allows the Word of God to pierce his heart, to find dwelling and resting place there, and to put into practice those things of which he reads. Notice the sharpness then. That, that in his life it was evil and bad's been cut away. Cut out better than any surgeon could ever have done it. What did that? The Word of God did it. But not only is the Word of God sharp that way, it is sharp because as it relates to the piercing asunder, that dividing asunder. Think about some of the things revealed to you in the Bible. You and I may know a great deal from experience about the natural world, but what do we know about the spirit world? And what do we know about the constitution of man? In fact, if you and I were to ask the common person on the street, what is the difference between the spirit and soul of a person? Who could answer? I'd submit to you the best doctors Vanderbilt has to offer would struggle to answer that question. But here the Hebrew writer says there is a difference. You see, you can divide between soul and spirit, and what book tells about that, this one? That means this book is sharp enough to even define and distinguish and correlate the difference between the soul and spirit of a man. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says human beings are composed of three things, body, spirit, and soul. Many throughout the ages have questioned there and even taught differently, but God's Word still says there's three components to a person. It's in God's Word, His sharpness reveals that fact. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? The more man learns scientifically and the more investigation takes us into experimentation and research, the more we learn that God was right all along. Even in language written over 2,000 years ago, the sharpness cannot be questioned. The things I've listed on the screen again remind us that sharpness is such that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Think about the essence of sharpness described in that passage. What defines good and bad? Is it left to you and me to define it? Is it left to you and I to stand before God at judgment and say, well, in my opinion that was good or in my opinion that was insufficient or inadequate? Absolutely not. The sharpness of God's Word defines what's good and bad. How many gray areas are there? Spiritually speaking, few if any. You and I live in a world where we're told that most things are gray. It's left to human judgment. Things are relative. Don't believe it for a minute. God's Word is sharp enough to identify what's good and what's not. And you and I can be thankful for that. We don't live in a gray area. We don't serve a gray God. We serve a God who has specifically stated that which pleases Him and that which is His will. That's one of the things a sharp object can do. For after all, You and I, when we wish to cut something, we don't like the cut to be imperfect, do we? When we're cutting a piece of wood to make a piece of furniture, we want the cut to be sharp, for if it's not, things won't nail together well. And imagine how shoddy cabinet work looks when the ends don't join well. Or in the kitchen when you cut a piece of pie, you don't want it smattered all over the bowl. You want the knife to be sharp and to make a nice, sharp image. God's Word can do that, make the sharpest image possible. But the verse closes by adding one more attribute, one more characteristic, and let's look at it as well. This one is somewhat related to the former, but it's also deserving of an added degree of discussion. Returning to the verse, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart? That's worthy of a few moments' reflection, don't you agree? For you and I know the limitations that we face. There's not a person among us who can look at another individual and discern what He's thinking the condition of his heart apart from the revelation of a being who can discern that heart. I can't by myself. It is an interesting point then to see. In the Greek, that word means discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. That means able to discern the deliberations, the intents, the motives, the thoughts of a person's heart. We understand so well with regard to God's Word, that the power is latent in that way. It is seen. It is visualized in that way. As we recognize that very thought, notice that God's Word discerns. We noted a moment ago, you and I by ourselves can't read somebody else's mind. That's beyond what God has given you and I the capability of doing. But God can and if he has revealed in his word a set of constraints, a set of ideas, a set of thoughts that then can be used to judge or draw conclusions about even the person's heart, that's completely reasonable. Because it's not you and I that do that judging, God does it. He is the heart searcher, Acts one twenty four. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my faults, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The fact, being that you and I may look upon an individual and draw a conclusion that he or she is not living correctly, that's not our opinion, if we can base that conclusion in the Word of God. Again, as we noted earlier, didn't Paul say, our scripture is given the inspiration of God, and what? It's profitable for doctrine. That is to say, teaching. What we teach, what we believe, what we practice. But he went on. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. What does reproof mean? That word reproof means to state a matter of correction. It's clear to see, then, that God has given us, by virtue of His Word, not only the opportunity, but the duty of correcting those that are in error. But again, it isn't by virtue of our opinion. It's books, chapter, and verse. But Paul went on to say, profitable for doctrine, reprove, correction, instruction, in righteousness. We then appreciate the fact that when we correct a person in love, using God's Word, That's able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. There are various things human beings are capable of that you and I find difficult to directly describe. Things like envy or jealousy. Can you put your finger on things like that? We understand though that God can discern those things and in His Word He reveals them. He even makes their characteristics known and hence God's Word can discern them in the lives of individuals like you and me. That's the way we cut out sin and shame, isn't it? That's how God's Word that its sharpness can remove those things that are not appropriate. It is in this very way that the Hebrew writer in the very next chapter challenged his hearers and his readers to apply the very things he had just revealed. That was with me beginning in verse number 12 of Hebrews 5. Beginning in that verse, he says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And I become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. But then he went on to say, But those that are full age, that is to say, those who have reached maturity, are able to exercise by good and evil the things revealed and made known. And thus the question, what about exercise? Have you and I exercised ourselves? Do we put into practice and discern the things we should by virtue of God's Word? That perhaps is a heavy challenge to all of us, but it's possible, for the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword able to pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and even of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts faults and the intents of the heart. To say these things about God's Word perhaps moves us to Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following. I'd like you to read with me, beginning in verse 11 of that chapter, as we read through verse number 16. Listen to the things that are able to be done by God's Word. We've noted now it's a discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We've noted the things of which it's capable. As we consider this, their own brethren can be brought back to the Lord. Those who perhaps are living in sin and shame can clean up their lives by virtue of obedience. But once that happens, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine with the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they long wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up unto him in all things which is the head even Christ. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. Did you notice that he mentioned that by faith these things happen? But notice that faith comes by hearing. And what? Right hearing by the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17 we then see that we must be people of the book. This book is quick, it's powerful, it's sharp, and it's able to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. As we draw our lesson this morning to its conclusion, may we submit them together and learn yet again some salient points about the nature of God's Word. First of all, the characteristics are truly remarkable. We know that the quickness means it's, it's living. It's alive. It's not a dead letter. It's not something you turn to just for historical value. It's as pertinent today as it ever was. Not only that, this word is powerful. It is God's dynamite to blast sin out of my life and yours. Furthermore, it's sharp. This word is so sharp that it even is able to divide between soul and spirit. The Hebrew writer spoke of it as between joints and marrow. Think about a surgeon trying to do surgery who could not distinguish between joints and marrow. I wouldn't want to be operated on by that man. This book, though, by virtue of God's revelation, is able to divide between the clearest things and things aren't gray. Finally, discernment of the latter part of the verse, discernment of the very things concerning the very body and spirit and soul, all of that helps us realize that the psalmist stated it so well in Psalm 119. Out of the 176 verses in that chapter, many of them relate directly to the character of God's Word. I've listed just a sampling of the verses. Verse 11, Thy Word have I hid in thine heart, that I might not sin against thee. We've learned this morning how and, how, how and why that occurs, because of what God's Word is, sharp and powerful. Notice also in verses 15 and 16, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy word. I will not forget thy law. What a powerful text. As one considers the others I've listed, those verses challenge us, as the psalmist did, to ever remember that the character of God's Word is something we must treasure very deeply. Today, have you obeyed that Word? Have you allowed its sharpness and power to change your life literally? For it will. If you've never allowed it to do that, understand that God didn't send you a dead letter. He didn't send you an ancient obsolete book. He sent you a book that will never need an appendix. Never will it need to be updated. That old Jerusalem gospel is needed for every age. Today, if you've never responded in faith to that, let today be the day. This 15th day of October 2006 could be your spiritual birthday and you'll rejoice forevermore at your obedience to the Lord's Gospel. He asks of you, demands of you this, believe in the Word of God and believe that He is the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as your Savior, as the Son of God. And then... Be immersed in water, baptize, as the word is used in the New Testament, and in that process, Christ's blood washes your sins away.
1: Today, we could aid
0: you in accomplishing that. If you have done that at some point in your life, but you haven't been true to that word, you've placed the Bible on the shelf, and it's done nothing but collect dust, it's time to dust off that Bible. It's time to let its quickness and its power sharpen your life, so that you too can be a powerful influence to others for the cause of the Master. If you need to rededicate your life to Him today, don't hesitate any longer. Brethren, precious souls will be happy to pray on your behalf for your rededication and the forgiveness of those sins. We could help you do that. And if we could, let today be the day where together we stand now and while we sing.